0: At this point in the book of Nehemiah, we can't celebrate just yet. We can't celebrate just yet. You see, the wall is finished, but the work is not. The work is not finished. In the first six chapters of Nehemiah, God was working on the wall. But in the rest of the book, God is working on the people. He's working on the people. And how does God do that? With his word with his word now this is how god always builds his church <laughs> That's how he always does it now, our desire here at life's journey is not to draw a crowd believe it or not it is not to draw a crowd now if we wanted to draw a big crowd we could do that it's actually not very hard We could uh, ride a motorcycle up on the stage for a sermon illustration. Uh, We could have circus clowns out in the parking lot for the children. And we could come up with all kind of neat, crazy ideas to draw a crowd in here. But our desire is not to draw a crowd, but to build a church. And a church can only be built around this. period. It's not built around motorcycles or circus clowns. It's built around God's Word. And tonight we're going to look at Nehemiah chapter 7 and 8, if you want to turn there now. Nehemiah 7, chapter 7 and 8. Uh, and we won't spend a ton of time on chapter 7. And the reason is because it is mostly about the repopulation of Jerusalem, and it's just like a long list of names It's a long list of names of people uh, who are going to repopulate the city. Okay, so the only verses I want to read from chapter 7 is verses 4 and 5. If you want to turn there now. So verses 4 and 5. Nehemiah says, Now the city was large and spacious, but there were few people in it, and the houses had not yet been rebuilt. So my God put it into my heart to assemble the nobles, the officials, and the common people for registration by families. I found the genealogical record of those who had been the first to return. This is what I found written there. And so now the names that follow in chapter 7, they are identical to the names listed in Ezra chapter 2. Now, who is Ezra? Ezra is the prequel, the prequel to Nehemiah. In fact, in the Hebrew Bible, there is no Ezra and Nehemiah. It's actually one book. They're together, okay? So it's essentially the same story. The book of Ezra is the prequel to Nehemiah. Uh, and so this chapter, the names listed here, it's identical list to Ezra chapter 2. Uh, and and the, the list is uh, names of folks who were Jewish exiles who have come back from Babylon. That's what the list is. And so why did Nehemiah steal Ezra's list? Well, Nehemiah's goal here is to repopulate Jerusalem with pure Jews, pure Jews only. Well, and he knew Ezra's list contained pure Jews only. So that's why he copied the list. Uh, And he, he is using it here to see who should move into the city of Jerusalem to repopulate it. Okay, so that's why he repeated the list here. Now, you get to the end of chapter seven, and you see that This takes place in the seventh month, the seventh month. This is very significant, and I want you to remember this. You see, the seventh month on the Jewish calendar is a festival month. It's party month, baby, okay? This is when the Jews party. The first day of the month was the Feast of Trumpets. The uh, 15th day was the Feast of Tabernacles. Uh, And the 10th day was the day of atonement, the day of atonement. Please keep that in mind as we turn now to chapter 8. Please keep that in mind. So let's turn to chapter 8, look at verse Uh, 1. We can read the end of chapter 7 if you want to. It says, When the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their towns, all the people came together as one in the square before the water gate. Y'all didn't know Richard Nixon was in the Bible, did you? Watergate, yeah. Anyway, okay, so um, all the people are gathered here together. How many people is that? Well, we know from chapter 7 that this is about 50,000 people. 50,000 people are gathered here, and why are they gathered? Let's keep reading. Uh, 8 verse 1, they came together as one, In the square before the water gate, they told Ezra, the teacher of the law, to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. So, all the people are gathered in Jerusalem. Why? To hear the word of God. That's why they're there. The walls have been rebuilt, but walls are not enough. They're not enough. God's people need god's word god's people need god's word and so in chapter eight god gives us three exhortations regarding his word that are highly 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 instructive for us number one is to understand his word understand his word number two is to rejoice in his word and number three is to obey his word now these are actually in order And the order is really important. First, understand. Second, rejoice. Third, obey. Let's please remember that order as we go through here. So number one is to understand God's word. Uh, In this chapter, the word understand appears six times. Six times. This is so important. For the Bible to change you, You must understand it. You must understand it. So many people know God's word, but they do not understand God's word. There's a big difference between memorizing scripture and understanding what scripture is saying. It's a big difference. Now, if you're here tonight and you don't know much about the Bible, or maybe you do, you do know some about the Bible, but you recognize your need to understand it better. You've come to the right place have come to the right place, we're here to help, okay? Uh, n- not only are our Sunday services Bible-centered, but so are our life groups, which are our small groups that meet during the week. Uh, our life groups are specifically designed to help any person, any person with any amount of Bible knowledge, including zero amount, <laughs> any n- Bible knowledge whatsoever, including zero, wherever you fall on that spectrum, I promise you, you can jump in a life group and feel right at home and learn a lot about Scripture. You don't have to have a Bible degree, a theological degree, or have as much Bible knowledge as Stanley to participate. Stanley's my man. (laughs) Sometimes I think Stanley's memorized the Bible. (laughs) He just flies it out there. Uh, You don't have to have a, a crazy ton of Bible knowledge. In fact, the life groups were specifically designed for you in mind, if you don't have a ton of Bible knowledge, I promise you, you can sit in the life group and feel comfortable and learn a ton. You can learn a ton, I promise. Uh, and so I actually have a Zoom life group that meets for about 45 minutes on Wednesday nights. And that's pretty neat because, you know, the, with the pandemic and everything, a lot, of, a lot of people are a little skittish about meeting live. And I totally get that. Uh, and then other people, it's just hard to meet, meet live anyway, just between schedules and everything. And so uh, if you would like to jump in my life group, we can make that happen. Uh, You can see me after the service, or you can uh, go to ljc.life. You can click on the Life Groups tab. uh, You can get signed up there. Uh, Also, our elders, they host a Life Group on Wednesday nights. Two of our elders do, and uh, that's an in-person group. And they hold it from 6 to 8 on Wednesday nights. If you'd like to sign up, you can see me or them, or you can go to ljc.life and click on the Life Groups tab, and we'll get you plugged in. Okay, so here in Chapter 8, Ezra makes a reappearance. Uh, Now, Nehemiah is the builder guy, but Ezra is the Bible guy. Ezra's the Bible guy. Uh, Now, I love in verse 1, did you notice that it's the people, it's the people who ask Ezra to come give them the word. (laughs) That's awesome. That's every pastor's dream. When the people are the ones asking for the preaching, that's extremely rare. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Now uh, there are so many people uh, in churches today that just have real no desire for the Bible at all. Uh, they they may come to church every Sunday, but what they really want is self help advice. Uh, they want life lessons from the preacher, but really no desire f- for what God's Word has to say to them on its own terms. They don't want the Bible to speak for itself. Uh, they want to hear what the Bible says, yes, but they want it on their terms. I want to know what the Bible says about finances. I want to know what the Bible says about marriage, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, But they won't take the Bible just on its own terms. And so um, this is extremely common in our American culture today. But here in Nehemiah, these people just want to hear from God, period. Just tell us what God has to say, is what they're asking. It's pretty remarkable. They have no interest in life lessons from Ezra. They're not looking for self-help. They're looking for God's word. Period. And that's how you know God is at work here. God himself is at work among the people. Another way you know God is at work is that Ezra preaches for 6 hours and the people listened. 6 hours. Now everybody just relax. Just relax. I probably won't even go half that long here tonight. <laughs> Just kidding. Uh, Nehemiah, let's look at verses uh, chapter 8, verses 2 and 3. 2 and 3. Uh, verse 2. So on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, which was made up of men and women and all who were able to understand. He read it aloud from daybreak till noon as he faced the square before the water gate, in the presence of the men, women, and others who could understand. And all the people listened attentively to the book of the law." So this is men, women, and children, okay? Children are included here. Uh, They're all gathered together to hear the word. Uh, And how do I know it's children? Well, it says all those old enough to understand were there. So we know children are are included, uh, and they're listening which is another clue that God is at work here <laughs> when the children are listening to the word. Uh, now, why is this? Why are the people, including children, sitting there for six hours and listening to the word? Because, like I said, God himself is at work here. God gave them a hunger for it. He gave them A thirst for it now maybe some of you are here tonight and you have no desire whatsoever to hear the word preached to you you have already tuned me out you tuned me out before we even started (laughs) and you know what that's okay I'm cool with that I get it I used to be a person sitting in those seats who did not give one rip about the preacher or the preaching or the word of God or nothing I've been there (laughs) Uh, and so you have grace for me I promise Uh, But what, what I will do is I'll just pray. I'll pray for you. I pray that God will do for you what God is doing here with Israel. I pray that God creates a hunger for the word in you. I pray that you become thirsty to hear great biblical preaching. I pray that you thirst for it like a deer thirsts for water in a dry land. I know what this word has done for me. It has changed my life. And I hope and I pray, I will pray for you that it will change your life also. I get it. You don't have a hunger for it right now. That's cool. I will pray for God to move in your life as he has in mine. And I will pray that you won't just desire it, but you will desire to understand it. To understand it. That's key. Let's look at verses 4 and 5. Ezra, the teacher of the law, stood on a high wooden platform built for the occasion. Beside him on his right stood, I'm not going to name all these names, there's seven of them, Uh, verse (laughs) verse 5, Ezra opened the book, all the people could see him because he was standing above them, and as he opened it, the people all stood up. Now some of you may come from high church contexts that have these huge wooden uh, elevated pulpits. Has anybody ever seen that, or what, know what I'm at least know what I'm talking about? The huge <laughs> elevated pulpits. Now I'm I have to admit I'm kind of a closet Anglican. I love those huge pulpits. <laughs> I'm not saying we got to build one, but I just think that's kind of neat. Uh, uh, now many of the early churches in the Reformation did this. They built these huge pulpits that the preacher would have to like walk up multiple steps to get up into the pulpit. Okay. Uh, now they weren't just trying to elevate the preacher. That wasn't at all what they were trying to do. What they were trying to do was create a visual reminder, a visual reminder that the people of God sit under the word of God. What they're trying to elevate was this. They're not elevating the man, they're elevating the word that the man is preaching. Okay, So they wanted that visual reminder that we are not over the Word. The Word is over us. We are not critiquing the Word. The Word is critiquing us. And that's what's going on here in Nehemiah. The Word is lifted high above the people. Verse six, Ezra praised the Lord, the great God, and all the people lifted their hands and responded, Amen, Amen. Then they bowed down and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. This is so encouraging to me. I love it. I mean, look at the incredible, worshipful response to Ezra's preaching here. What is so encouraging to me is that Ezra preached for 14 years before he saw a response like this. 14 years Most of the time when Ezra preached, the people were on their iPhones. They were on their iPhones just as scrolling. Most of the time when Ezra preached, the people were half asleep, dreaming about where they were going to eat after the service. Yet Ezra was undeterred. He was undeterred. What did he do? He just kept preaching. (laughs) Just kept bringing the word. Jesus kept bringing the word. So, if you're here tonight, and you're a parent, or you're a life group leader, or if you're a student, and maybe you're leading a you know a small group Bible study in your school, maybe you're a prospective pastor in the room. Listen to me. If you get nothing else out of this tonight, get this: revival is not your job. It's not your job. Revival is God's job. Your job is just to give the word. Just give the word, and that's it. And then let the chips fall where they may. And so that is what encourages me so much about this, is is I don't have to stress out up here and worry about who's paying attention, who's on their iPhone, who doesn't care what I'm saying, who really cares. I don't have to worry about that. All that's totally irrelevant. It's only my job to deliver the word. And then God does the rest. The Spirit does the rest. Revival is God's job, not your job. Just give the word. Let's look at verses 7 and 8. The Levites, I'm not going to name these folks either, but there's some Levites here, (laughs) and they instructed the people in the law while the people were standing there. They read from the book of the law of God, making it clear and giving the meaning so that the people understood what was being read. Now, this is really interesting. This is essentially small group discipleship happening here. Do you see, see what's happening? This is small group discipleship. So Ezra is teaching the large group, the 50,000 group. But then these multiple other Levite teachers mentioned here move about the crowd to teach it in smaller groups. Why? Well, verse 8 tells us, so the people could understand what they heard. Sometimes it's just easier to understand in smaller groups. It just is. We think here at Life's Journey, that is the Jesus model of discipleship. That yes, he taught big crowds, but then what would he do? He would break up the crowds and teach in smaller groups, which is why life groups are so important. While we talk about it every week, why it's so important to us at Life's Journey, we, we think that's Jesus' model, it's clearly Ezra's model, and the whole point is so that people can understand. In smaller groups, you can raise your hand, ask a question. Hey, here's my thoughts on this. This doesn't make any sense. Well, what about this scripture? That seems to contradict this scripture. You know, you can really discuss things in a smaller group, and wouldn't you know it? Boom, here we have it in Nehemiah. Pretty neat. Okay, so that's number one, Understand. Don't just know God's word, understand God's word. Number two, God wants us to rejoice in his word. Rejoice in his word. Look at verse nine. Then Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the priest and teacher of the law, and the Levites who were instructing the people said to them all, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people have been weeping as they listened to the words of of the law. Now, what in the world is going on here? <laughs> uh, the people are hearing God's word, and they are crying. They're crying, not rejoicing. But why? Why are they listening? I mean, that, that would be kind of a bizarre response. Typically, to preaching, if I was just up here preaching and all of you just begin weeping, <laughs> I would not take that as a good sign, typically. But this actually was a good sign. It actually was. Because the people are hearing the law, if you noticed. They're hearing the law, the commands of God, and their hearts are broken. Their hearts are broken. Because they are reminded of why they were sent to Babylon in the first place because they're idolaters. They're sinners. And they've just come to that stunning realization and begin to weep. And this is exactly what God wanted. It's exactly what the law was intended to do. Paul called the moral law the ministry of death. The ministry of death. Why? Why? Because God uses his law, his demand for you to be perfectly obedient as a way to kill off your self-righteousness. He uses his perfect law as a mirror to expose you, to accuse you, and to drive you away from yourself and into the arms of your loving creator where you will find mercy and forgiveness. Let's look at verses 10 through 12. 10 through 12. Nehemiah said, Go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks and send some to those who have nothing prepared. This day is holy to our Lord. Do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. The Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be still, for this is a holy day. Do not grieve. Then all the people went away to eat and drink, to send portions of food and to celebrate with great joy, because they now understood the words that had been made known to them. What did they understand? Well, I told you to remember that this was the seventh month, the month of festivals. Festivals. In verse 11, the Levite said, This day is holy. And indeed, it was. It was a holy day. You see, this was the feast of trumpets. And this was a day of celebration, it was an announcement of joy. And what was the announcement? The announcement was is that just around the corner on the 10th day of the month is the day of atonement it's the day of atonement so yes you are a sinner but do not weep for your sin because atonement is just around the corner it's just around the corner Folks, this is the message of the Bible. This is the message of the Bible. You are a sinner, yes, but do not weep for your sins. For atonement is just around the corner. The Bible exposes our hearts to our sin and wickedness, yes, But at the same time, it melts our hearts with the news of a Savior, a Redeemer, one who will make the final and the ultimate atonement for our sins. That's the message of the Bible. So, if Israel rejoiced over the blood of lambs and goats spilled for their sins, How much more should you and I rejoice over the blood of the perfect lamb spilled for our sins? I'm not telling you to read the Bible out of some religious duty. I'm telling you to read the Bible because it shows you Jesus. It shows you your Redeemer. That's why you need to read the Bible. Years ago, I had a friend whose mother was dying. And before she passed, she wrote him this beautiful letter about how much she loved her precious boy, about how much she cherished their relationship. And after she died... My friend carried that letter with him everywhere he went. He read it over and over and over again. Tear stains filling the page. Folks, this is what the Bible is. That's what it is. And this is the relationship we should have with it. The Bible is a love letter from our Creator, from our Savior, from our Redeemer, where he explains the height and the depth and the width of his great love for us. If you're reading the Bible and feeling condemned, It's because you don't understand it. You come across a passage that exposes your sin, but you don't understand that atonement is just around the corner. It's just around the corner. The Bible, understood correctly, will flood your heart with joy and peace. And laughter. And how will you respond to your newfound joy? You will respond the same way Israel did. With obedience. And that brings us to our last point. Obeying God's word. Obeying God's word. Look at verses 13 through 18. On the second day of the month, the heads of all the families, along with the priests and the Levites, gathered around Ezra the teacher to give attention to the words of the law. They found written in the law, which the Lord had commanded through Moses, that the Israelites were to live in temporary shelters during the festival of the seventh month. And that they should proclaim this word and spread it throughout their towns and in Jerusalem. Go out into the hill country and bring back branches from olive and wild olive trees. And from myrtles, palms and shade trees to make temporary shelters. As it is written. So the people went out and brought back branches and built themselves temporary shelters on their own roofs. In their courtyards, in the courts of the house of God and in the square by the water gate and the one by the gate of Ephraim. The whole company that had returned from exile built temporary shelters and lived in them. From the days of Joshua, son of Nun, until that day, the Israelites had not celebrated it like this. And their joy was very great. Day after day, from the first day to the last, Ezra read from the book of the law of God. They celebrated the festival for seven days. And on the eighth day, in accordance with the regulation, there was an assembly. Israel had not been living in obedience. Like, not at all. Not at all. And when they found out that they were forgiven... When they found out that God did not forsake them, how did they respond? With obedience. (laughs) Oh, the irony. Oh, the irony. But this is how the Bible presents obedience. As a response to grace. If you don't believe me, here's your homework. I know you all love homework. Here's your homework if you don't believe me. This week or tonight, I would like for you to look up the Ten Commandments. Look up the the chapter where the Ten Commandments are listed. And I want you to read to yourself, even out loud if you need to, the first verse of the Ten Commandments. Just read the first verse there if you don't believe me. That in the Bible, obedience is always a response to grace. You see, Christians don't obey for grace. We obey from grace. We don't obey to receive the love of Christ. No, we obey because we already have the love of Christ. We had the love of Christ before we were born. And you see, my friend received that letter from his mom. Not because he was an obedient son, but just because he was her son, you see. Likewise, you and I did not earn God's love, nor this incredible love letter we did not earn it, we did not earn God's love or this love letter, but we have both in overabundance anyway. God loves us just because he loves us and for no other reason. And that is the foundation for our obedience. A poem by Horatius Bonner says, Terror accomplishes no real obedience. Suspense brings forth no fruit unto holiness. No gloomy uncertainty as to God's favor can subdue one lust or correct our crookedness of will. But the free pardon of the cross uproots our sin and withers all its branches. Only the certainty of love, forgiving love, can do this. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your love. We did not earn it. We do not deserve it and yet we have it. In overabundance, we have it. We didn't love you, we hated you. We hated you, but you loved us. We didn't want anything to do with you, but you wanted everything to do with us. Lord, we ran and we ran and we ran away from from you. And you ran and ran and ran to come after us because of your great love. So please help us tonight, tomorrow, and the day after and the day after and the day after that to see your word as exactly that. Love letter from our Heavenly Father what a precious gift father you have given us in your word this incredible expression of your love but yet somehow father you went a step farther than that word become flesh and dwell among us. (laughs) Father, it's unbelievable. The gift you have given us in your son. The word. Who was love made flesh. Who was love in action. Who was love in word and deed. was love literally personified what a savior what a gift father you have given us father i pray as we move forward as we leave here tonight that you would remind us of your great love it is so easy for us to get distracted and for us to forget your gospel to forget the love you have given us the love you have shown us please bring us back to your word to your son and to his cross to see what love really looks like thank you father